Welcome to SidePod Radio, where we bring you the story behind the science. I'm your host, Tom Render, and today we're joined by Emily Fairfax. And Emily will be the new Assistant Professor of Environmental Sciences and Resource Management at California State University in Channel Islands this coming academic year. And our research focus on eco-hydrology in rapid areas, particularly those who have been impacted by beaver damming. Uh, so really pleased to have you on the show, Emily, and welcome. Thank you. I'm sure uh, beaver damming is... Um, it's a very fascinating topic for a number of different reasons, and I do want to get into that. I'm sure you're probably excited as well. But just to give everybody a bit of context, um, I think we could start with a little bit of the origin story of yourself. Um, kind of, you know, how did you get into science? Is it something you've always done? Uh, and then specifically, how did you get into the research you're conducting at the moment? Yeah, so I've always been interested in science ever since I was a little bitty girl. Uh, the first memory that I have of talking about science, I was maybe three years old, and I told my mom that I needed to walk on the rings of Saturn. I was really excited about that. I'd seen a picture of Saturn somewhere or something, but to not yeah. worry, like I would be safe. I'd bring my car seat. And so I had this very practical, <laughs> but very ambitious perspective on science, and it never really went away. I was just like constantly go-getter, but don't worry, I'm going to plan this. I'm going to figure it out. And okay. <laughs> Yeah, kind of a weird story. Um, it sort of followed me all through school. I was in these musicals in elementary school that were about wetlands. And most of my peers, these little elementary school kids, they were just like, yeah, whatever, this is another activity. And I was so into it. Like I was making my costumes really intense. And I was so obsessed with making sure I knew all the words. And I was like, I love this. I have to do my best. And I kept doing that all the way through college. I was a double major with chemistry and physics, and I just wanted to keep all the science doors open. I wasn't sure exactly what kind of science I was going to do. I knew I really yep. liked environmental science and outdoor science, but I wasn't sure what kind of careers you could do with that. So mm. after graduation, I actually wound up working as an engineer for a year, and okay. it was fun but it wasn't really my passion. And I kept finding myself going outside and going fishing and hiking. And I was watching these documentaries, trying to distract myself. And one came on about beavers and wetlands. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, mind blown. I was back to that feeling I had all when I was growing up of like, I love this, I want to do this. And mm -hmm. I decided like, I'm going to go to grad school for this. And I applied for grad schools, I got in, I did my PhD, I still get like the academic equivalent of butterflies in my stomach when I work on beaver dam projects. So I know I picked the right field and it sort of just kept spiraling from there. Okay, perfect. Yeah. It's, uh, that's quite interesting. It's, it's nice to hear that some people have, um, it takes them a while to, I suppose, find what they're into. Um, and you kind of, you knew the subject area, but it took a little bit of time and you're doing some stuff before you were like, actually, this is the topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's interesting to hear. So what was it about that, um, I suppose, that documentary or, or um, you know, whatever you're watching on them when you applied, what was it specifically about that that made you so interested? Well, early in college, I had worked for a summer leading canoe trips in northern Minnesota, and mm. there were tons and tons of beaver dams up there, which were incredible. We were just in this absolutely remote wilderness, and there's these huge structures that are so watertight, and it looks like people could have made them. And honestly, they were a little bit of a pain at the time because I had to pull my canoe over them instead of just paddling downstream. <laughs> but 
I got over that pretty quickly. And I was Who's just, put that there? It's really irritating. <laughs> right? I just kept thinking back like, wow, these are so industrious and amazing and difficult to pull my canoe over. And like, I'm surprised that a giant rodent made this. And then I kind of yeah. didn't think about it for a while. And when I was watching that documentary, there were all these aerial shots of huge beaver ponds, like the ones that I had been on in northern Minnesota. And I didn't really ever see them like that before. They were just massive landscape scale features. They were completely changing how the earth looked. And the only time I'd seen that kind of change was when you look at what humans do to the land. And so it was a very interesting thought for me, like, wow, we're not really the only ones that are creating these massive landscape changes. Okay, interesting. And um, I suppose then the next thing, obviously about your sort of research and and what you're doing on that, could you give us a bit of a I would say a timeline because I assume you're not the first person to, <laughs> to yeah. research beavers. Um, but do we know a lot about them and what they do? Or is it quite a people had an idea and really we, we've made a lot of progress or, you know, where, where are we in that kind of timeline of, of research, would you say? So the research really got going in like the 1920s and 1930s, maybe. There wasn't a lot before then. Beavers were mostly looked at as a resource for their fur or for the castoreum that they produce. And We trapped them almost to extinction, so then they were kind of out of the public eye. And as they were coming back, we started seeing them taking back over these streams and these waterways and bringing about changes. And so a lot of old school geologists and zoologists started thinking about, okay, what happens when a beaver moves in? And since then, Mm -hmm. they've sort of come in and out of fad. There's like 10 years where people are really into beavers and they're studying them, and then they kind of get boring for a little while and people stop studying them. Uh, There's a lot that we know about their ecology. They are ecosystem engineers. It's always been very interesting seeing these super biodiverse uh, ecosystems pop up around them. But in terms of how they affect physical processes like droughts and fires and floods, that's a lot more recent. I would say that that research has really only started in the 1980s and 90s. And just in the last decade, it's really picked up um, because there have been a couple of books and documentaries that have come out that have really brought beavers back into the spotlight. Mm, okay, I see. And, and and what does your research or what did your research focus on? So my research is all about how beavers affect water in water stressed climates and then what that means for the ecosystem around them. And so most of what I've been looking at is droughts and fires. And if you have beaver dams and these great big beaver complexes in the middle of a desert or an arid region, and then you have an environmental stressor like a drought or a fire, how does the ecosystem around that beaver pond respond differently than just a standard stream ecosystem or a human-impacted stream ecosystem. And a lot of the motivation for that comes from building more resilient landscapes. Mm, okay, interesting. And, and what did you found? Well, what have you found so far? They are rock stars at making resilient landscapes. In terms of droughts, I compared the beaver damming in a couple of creeks in Nevada to areas on the creek that didn't have any damming, and then also to some irrigated alfalfa fields where people were managing the crops. And the places Mm. that had beaver dams, the vegetation in those areas looked a lot more like an irrigated crop than it looked like anything else in the landscape. So essentially, these beavers are acting like little bitty landscape managers. They're keeping plants green, even when there's droughts. And then I was like, okay, let's up the ante. Let's push these beavers and see what they can really do. And I looked at a bunch of beaver complexes that were in huge wildfires. And I wanted to see, Mm. can they persist through this? Is it like, are they wet enough that they won't burn? And what I found Mm. in five different states was that across the board, beaver dammed wetlands and beaver dammed riparian areas don't 
burn particularly. They stay green even when they're surrounded by walls of fire. And while that might not make a big difference in the long run because riparian areas are pretty resilient, they'll spring back on their own anyways. If you're a fish Mm. or if you're a frog or a salamander or a small mammal and you're trying to escape a fire, you probably can't outrun the entire wildfire. But if you can get to a wetland, then you can make it through that fire. And, and I suppose the same, obviously, for people that perhaps are trapped in those places if they're out hiking or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we had a lot more of these wetlands, you could imagine that they might start to act as more of a fire break instead of just a fire refuge spot. Oh, yeah, yeah, and break up the whole fire in, in the first instance and help you know, put it out mm-hmm. quicker, I guess. Absolutely. Okay. Ah, that's, that's really interesting. And so I suppose what... Um, you know what? What kind of progress has been made so far? Because you've 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 mentioned a few different things there, mm-hmm. um, and then what you know? What's the next step from that? So we understand uh, if we have beavers in these areas, actually the environment does better for these reasons. We protect against fires and that sort of thing. So what 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 does that mean? Um, you know what what should we do about that? So I think the next steps kind of go down two different paths. The first path is figuring out exactly what is it about the beaver ponds that's making the landscape so resilient. In a lot of places, it's totally great to reintroduce beavers or to support the beaver habitat and let them live and let them do their own thing naturally. But in more urban areas or on ranch land or farmland where the private landowner is not interested in having beavers, it could still be worth it to mimic that effect. And so if we can understand what it is about the beaver ponds that makes them so fire resilient and drought resilient, that would help in better building resiliency on our own after them. The other branch is taking that data that I found and trying to make it obvious to people that this happens. I've been looking through a lot of permit data from California lately about why people want to trap beavers and kill them and move them. And there's just a lot of misunderstanding still about what beavers do and what they don't do to the landscape. And I don't think a lot of people realize that when beavers build their ponds, they're actually improving waterways. They're actually making it healthier. They're helping vegetation. Because a lot of people still write in for permits and they're like, I think these beavers are hurting the vegetation. I want to trap them. So I want to take my data and make it a lot more out there. Yeah, yeah. And put it in the hands of the right people and so they can make more informed decisions, I, uh, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Right thing. Okay, so what, what uh, have you got some new projects in the pipeline then? Or, or you, you know, how, how are you continuing your research? Yeah. Or how would you like to? I've got a couple of new projects in the pipeline. One of them is trying to figure out a way to identify beaver ponds from satellite imagery using machine learning. And so right now, what I do when I want to look at beaver ponds is I open up Google Earth or other satellite images, and I go around and I look for them. And in the last four or five years of trying to find them, there's all these different criteria in my head that I'm looking for, like, oh, the slope should be about this much. They're probably going to be by this kind of vegetation. But it still takes a huge amount of time to do. And that's the first step in any project that I do is find the beavers. And if I could mm-hmm. write some code that could take the criteria I already have in my head and embed it into sort of an image processing algorithm, then I could streamline that step and look at more field sites faster and see, look at all the different types of beaver ponds out there, big ponds, small ponds, ponds with lots of channels, ponds with no channels, and then start to really dig into that Why do these ponds create this resiliency? What is it about them? Is it the channels? Is it the dam? Is it the fact that they're this deep instead of that deep? Because until I have a lot more field sites that I can visit more quickly, that is going to go unanswered. 
to Louise. Okay, so that that's quite a that's quite a project. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm guessing, and you're, I guess I was quite interdisciplinary as well. That's not just um, you're going to need some tech people for that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> some data people. So, okay. Um, how how's that project coming together at the moment? Is is it a kind of a collaboration between uh, departments within your university or, or people that you know, or, or um, it's quite worldwide. How, how's it coming together? So this one is brand new. So far, it's just me and one collaborator who have been looking at different types of algorithms that we could use and different sort of packages for looking at images. There has been um, some releases with Google Images and Google APIs so that we might be able to use the Google Earth Engine platforms to make this more streamlined. But figuring out mm. exactly what we want out of it has also been a question because if we make this a public product, then we aren't the only ones that can easily find beavers. And if people are trying to trap them still or hunt them or move them, then I don't want to make that a lot easier. So trying to figure out the best way to roll out this project so that it can be used for conservation and informed land management decisions without making it so public where all the beavers are and sort of violating their privacy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't think about that actually. That's quite. <laughs> you don't just put it in the hands of all sort of, I suppose, yeah, hunters and trappers. That sort of person. Like, oh, well, this is easy. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. I suppose. Are you so? Are you still in the process of looking for collaborators and, and things like that? Then. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be quite a big project. There's going to need to be a lot of ground truthing. People going out to beaver ponds and confirming, is this one that it found? Did it misidentify something? And then why, if it hits it? Like, what kinds of features did it pick up on? Because some things that I think about are going to be easier for a computer to mimic than others. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So anybody listening along, of course, uh, we have lots of science enthusiasts, but also scientists uh, listening along to this. So if you want, to, if this sounds like something interesting, do get in, in touch with Emily. Yeah, um, please do. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, um, okay. So uh, what what is the sort of, you touched a little bit on the overall sort of outcome of this project, but, you know, how do you want this to affect, I suppose, one beavers and the two people? So for beavers, I feel kind of bad for them because... They are these super industrious creatures and they do a lot for the ecosystem around them and they take care of all these other animals just by going about their everyday lives. And they're giant rats. And when people see them, people are grossed out or they're freaked out and they don't understand them and they don't like them. And like mm-hmm. beavers are vegans. They don't eat fish. They won't bite you. They will try to be very docile until you're really messing with them. And they just have such a bad reputation sometimes. And so one of the things that I've really tried is to make it clear that beavers are not awful. Yes, they're big rats. Yes, you might not like rats, but they're great for the environment. They're very passive. They're not going to bother you when you're hiking. Like the most that they'll do almost certainly is just slap their tail to make a loud sound to tell you to go away, but they're going to go hide. Like they're essentially cows. They're very, very casual animals. And so a lot of what I want to do is make that very clear. When I write about beavers, when I talk about beavers, they're not pests. They're not animals that we need to be managing necessarily. They're managing themselves for the most part. When Mm. beavers were at their max population before the European over-trapping happened, there were about 400 million of them in continental North America which is estimated to be about one beaver per kilometer of habitable stream. So they were everywhere. Mm. And then we trapped them to like nothing. 
And now they're back at maybe 10 to 12 million. So they're nowhere near their max capacity. And people are already like, oh, do we have too many beavers? Is this, is this a bad thing? And it's not. There's plenty of room for them in the wilderness. They have a lot of really good ecosystem benefits that either we could pay human engineers to manage for like X number of thousands of dollars per year, or we could just leave it to the beavers and let them do their thing. Yeah. So do you find it, I find it hilarious because you do see that kind of thing a lot with it. People say that. So, oh, 20 million beavers, that sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Compared to the 1.7.5 billion people walking around the planet, it's, right. it's nothing. Oh, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. So, uh, so for the beavers, it is um, a PR campaign mm-hmm. of uh, rebranding the beaver, perhaps a uh, Angry Beavers was not the correct show yeah, to do should that. Have friend- friendly Beavers or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and then, and then for people as well, um, we mentioned a few different things here with um, sort of fires and ecosystems. Um, uh, you know, are, are there kind of options here for perhaps more sustainable, like environmental farming mm-hmm. and uh, landscape? like that what what, what's it mean first or the the person population so for people i think that there's a lot of room to talk about what beavers do and then let them make a more informed decision about if they want beavers on their land because we do have a lot of private landowners and public landowners that just don't have that information available to them there have been some studies in wyoming asking public opinion on beavers And they ask private landowners and public landowners, and they say, you know, do you want more beavers on your land? And almost all of them respond, I want more information about what beavers would do on my land. I don't know yet. And like with ranchers, there's been a good amount of success in places like Nevada because they get beavers on their land and it's already this super water stressed climate. And then all around the beaver ponds pops up this great healthy grass and riparian vegetation, which their cows like. And it's essentially a retention pond on your land, but you didn't have to build it. And so if you can have this sort of self-sustaining thing, it can ultimately be beneficial. The problem comes in when the beaver builds its dam too close to something that you don't want flooded, like a root cellar or your house or a road. But there are absolutely ways to manage that. You can put in these pipes through the beaver dams called beaver deceivers. And essentially, you control their pond level. You decide how much water is coming through but the beaver can't see the pipe or doesn't understand what the pipe does. So it still thinks it's controlling its mm. pond and you can live in a lot more like symbiotic way instead of sort of being at odds with the beavers. And so I think that there's definitely mm. a lot of room for that, especially on big public lands like Bureau of Land Management in the US and forest lands and national parks, anything that's sort of a designated wilderness area. There's not a reason to keep beavers out. They were there before. They probably should be there now. Yeah, it puts a better sort of balance in the whole ecosystem, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. And so I, I, that leads me on to my next thought is um, this kind of project. A lot of this seems to be around kind of making people aware um, and in particular sort of people that are managing land, whether that be private or, you know, your public land manager or, or conservationist or you know something like that Uh, so are there some sort of projects or outreach projects community projects that sort of thing that people can get involved with so there is a nonprofit in california called um the martinez beavers and they started the group is worth a damn and what they do is they put on festivals and they go table at different events and they talk about all the reasons that beavers are good in california because right now there's a lot of active legislation and decision-making happening about should we let people trap these? Should we make these a protected species? And so that's a really great nonprofit. 
There's some excellent rewilding going on in the UK where beavers have been recently reintroduced. And there's many different groups. I follow them all on Twitter. I retweet them constantly. So if you go to my Twitter, you'll probably see them. Um, And they're doing a lot of really good work. In Scotland, the beaver just got protected status as of May 1st. And it was this huge step. But there's still issues. People are still hunting and trapping the beavers. And right now it's their um, baby having season. And so it's very sad seeing some of these beavers being killed that should be having babies. And so there's a lot of work Mm. still to be done about educating the public. And a lot of it comes down to, do they trust the scientist that's telling them this? Do they think that I'm actually trying to do what's in their best interest too? Or do they think that I'm just going in on some agenda? Um, If I can Mm. build trust with people, then I find it a lot easier to talk about these things. And so in terms of getting involved, like talking to the people that trust you is probably the biggest thing that you can do. Like educate yourself on beavers and then go talk to mom and dad about them and tell them why they're okay and they're not this horrible pest. They're actually a good thing. Yeah, why they're they're actually helpful and you might want to be more involved and that sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, this is perhaps not as so common question, um, but what, you know, if you did have a big, uh, like where I I currently live in the south of France, Mm -hmm. um, near the Alps, so it's lots of like, you'd say villages spread through mountains, uh, mountainous regions and that sort of thing where you can't you just can't really build buildings anyway mm-hmm. but, you know is is that a good area to start introducing these animals into and um you know can people not not keep them like a pet is not what i mean but you know there's lots of people here who own vast amounts of land mm-hmm. um and i'm sure there are in other parts of the world canada especially you know places like this where actually for somebody to own three acres of land is not that uncommon just because you can't really build on it so nobody wants it anyway uh is that a good place for people to go actually i like beavers want to help them can they not keep it as a pet but do you know what i mean put it on their land in in that way is that a good idea yeah it's definitely possible it depends on the land itself there's a few models out there and definitely different like scientists and consulting groups that can help you figure out if the actual land is a good place for the beavers they prefer certain slopes they prefer certain vegetation to already be there but they're pretty hardy creatures. Like they'll build in the middle of a desert in Arizona. They'll build in the mountains above the tree line here in Colorado. They're up like on the peaks of the 14ers. Like I've seen beaver dams at 11,500 feet in mountain channels. There's no trees around, but there's beavers. And so they'll, they'll be pretty tough. Uh, there's been some studies in Belgium of beavers in mountain streams, and they've done really well. They attenuate flood waves. They help control sediment delivery. And if you want beavers on your land, I know at least here in Colorado, there's somewhat of a waiting list to get some of the relocated beavers. So they'll move them mm-hmm. out of Denver, our main cities, and then they'll put them up in the, the hills and the mountains where ranchers and property owners want the beavers because it keeps water on their land. And we have been in droughts a lot lately, but you can't always mm-hmm. build retention ponds because the water laws here are very strict and you can't deprive your downstream neighbor of water. But if a beaver built it, that wasn't you. And so you kind of skirt around it that way. So people really want to get the beavers on their lands. And- yeah, I, I, I was thinking of a similar thing here. There's a couple of places here on the, between the mountains where um, there's just not enough rainfall. So like, like uh, currently there's a lot of restrictions in place on new buildings. Mm-hmm. Like People want to extend their houses and things. And they're like, no, you can't because the water from the mountains isn't going anywhere. Like it's all going into one place or, you know, so you've got places that have got basically no water uh, and then all the snow melts and then one area is just totally flooded and underwater. Mm -hmm. So there's like a whole sort of problem with how are we 
you know getting water into different areas and different places i know that's i've got a, a couple of friends literally work in that kind of field um i was just thinking you know this is this could actually be a really easy not not easy but a very practical way of managing that whole problem and just you know diverting water into various different areas by just putting these animals in place and letting them live mm -hmm. and with beavers one of the big things that they do especially in mountain systems is they can reroute a lot of that water into the soil and down into the groundwater system and so then it'll come back up downstream somewhere and it sort of bypasses mm -hmm. this more rugged mountain channel and it gets a lot more surface water groundwater mixing which has biogeochemical implications it, it kind of cascades what they're doing and to simulate that as humans is really challenging and frustrating. But to let beavers do it, you do have to sort of give up your locus of control and just say, okay, beaver, like you do your thing, I'm going to trust you. Um, and it could take mm. a couple years to see the impact of that. But I think that's ultimately easier than constantly trying to manage it myself, even if I do get to have more control in that scenario. Yeah, and just stops you needing to, I don't know, probably end up paying tens of thousands, if not millions in building all sorts of different things. And then you've got to put concrete in places and pipes and mm -hmm. metal machinery to disturb all the wildlife in the process of doing that. And, you know, you end up doing more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. So it could be a very, very sort of that uh, sustainable living type thing. Lots of... Um, you know, governments now are looking to more sustainable ways of of managing the land that you know they're responsible for, mm -hmm. um, both the pub, you know public's good as well as the good of the, the land and the animals that are on it. Um, yeah, Europe's been yeah. an interesting case because beaver were native to Europe and a lot of Eurasia, mm -hmm. and then they were trapped even harder than they were in North America. And so, a lot of the efforts in Europe right now have been completely reintroducing beaver and bringing them back from essentially extinction. Mm -hmm. And it's been really successful mm. in the UK. It's been very successful in Scotland. I just saw recently that some beavers showed up in Spain. And so they're starting to spread out a little more. They've been in like Poland and Romania for a while. And I'm curious to see like how far will it go? Like how much of Europe will embrace the beavers that were once there? But for them, it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago instead of just like 100 years ago. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 so where do they fit in, in terms of the... Um, I say food chain. Particularly the right word, but you know what I mean. Like you said, obviously the vegetarians, so they eat plants and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, do I need to be worried about what types of plants? You know, are they going to eat all of X, Y, and Z type of plant? That's going to mean that all of my whatever other animals eat that plant can't eat it anymore. And what kind of predators are going to come after them? Perhaps you know, if I put you know three thousand beavers in this one area, am I suddenly going to get impacted with you know loads of I don't know wolves coming to eat them or yeah <laughs> yeah good questions the, <laughs> so with the food that they eat the biggest complaint is that they do cut down trees because they use it for building material and they eat the bark and the sugary layer beneath the bark from that and so if you have a lot of aspen trees or these like nice pretty color changing trees beavers are going to chew some of them down um, but these trees did co-evolve with beavers for the most part and so they grow back very quickly so it's not like it's gone forever. You're just not going to have a 200-year-old aspen on your property anymore. The beaver's probably going to cut it down. And for some people, mm -hmm. that's very annoying and they don't want that. And I totally understand that. And if you have a favorite tree, all you have to do is wrap it in chicken wire and the beavers won't chew it down. They will not cut through metal. They're not quite that intense. <laughs> um, once the beavers are established, they don't have a huge number of predators that are left. Um, they 
will be hunted by wolves and mountain lions and grizzly bears because a fully grown adult beaver in North America, the North American variety, it can get up to like 70, 80 pounds pretty regularly on the males. And that that's a big rodent. Like you need a big predator to deal with that. Their babies, they'll get picked off by hawks and coyotes and other things. In Europe, the European beaver is a little bit smaller. It tends to be around 40 pounds, but that's still a pretty big rodent. And so you're going to be looking at really big predators coming for it, but it's not necessarily the food of choice. Beavers are very awkward on land, so they're really easy to eat when they're on land and to hunt. But once they're in the water, they're extremely difficult to catch. And so most of the big predators would rather go for something like a deer than a beaver. Mm, okay. And just to give the translation to UK listeners or Europeans, perhaps, 70 pounds is about 30 kilos. Yeah, um, big boys. So, you kind of, yeah. <laughs> so you're kind of talking about sort of a medium-sized dog yeah. type of... Yeah, like a seven-year-old kid. Yeah, that's... Uh, okay. I actually didn't think they were that big. Yeah. I know they look kind of big in pictures, but I was like, mm, I don't think they're that big. I would have, I would have gone with like a, a an oversized cat more than a small dog. They're kind of they're very round, so it's deceptive because they're very low to the ground, but they're just like big round bowling balls of animals, like very spherical. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, okay, so um, I suppose you know there's there some more things that you would because you mentioned you would like people to know a lot more about this beaver. You know they're, they're not a pest mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Uh, um, trying to think of you know we covered off a lot of these things for you. Or is there anything else you want people to really know about beavers and what they can do for them? Some of the things that I think are really important is when I talk to people that are interested in the outdoors, like hikers and campers, there's still a pretty mixed opinion on beavers, which I, at first I didn't understand because I was like, these are part of the wilderness. You should embrace all of the wilderness. But they were worried because, you know, beavers, what if they're flooding my trails? What if they're making these big, like kind of gross ponds where I was going to have this nice clear stream flowing and just a little bit of misunderstanding about how far the impacts of beavers go and what it means for other animals. And so one of the things mm-hmm. I really like is if you are any kind of an outdoor enthusiast, if you like watching birds, if you like fishing, if you like identifying plants and insects or anything else like that, you're going to find the most things to look at in beaver ponds. They are wetlands. We don't have a lot of wetlands anymore. We're losing them globally at a disturbing rate. And so they're becoming kind of a more strange thing to see. And yes, they have a lot more mud and sometimes there's more bugs at them. Um, which is not necessarily everybody's favorite thing, but they also have more flowers. They have more fish. They have more birds. A lot of birds will nest by the beaver ponds and you can see these eggs and little nests. And it's so incredible. And it's so rare now that we have that kind of wetland. And when we do have wetlands that aren't beaver dammed, at least in North America, they're very, very sensitive ecosystems. And so they can be destroyed really easily by human impact. But as soon as you put the beavers in, it's like this little land manager that's doing everything it can to keep that wetland there, despite humans, which is great, because sometimes we accidentally ruin wetlands. Like, it's not like we're this horrible, malicious species that's terrible. Like, we're just trying to live our lives, too. But if there's beavers there, they can sort of buffer our impact. And so I really want people to know, like, there's a lot of benefits to beaver ponds and wetlands. And if you're unfamiliar with them, or they make you nervous, that's okay. But like, give them a chance. Mm. <laughs> yeah find out some more information first do your homework ask the experts that sort of thing before you kind of really make too many decisions so, so, so you know it sounds like to me anyway it sounds like there's a lot of different kind of 
things to consider, mm-hmm. both positive and negative. You know, you, like you said, you can appreciate why some people don't want them, but other people are overlooking them when actually it would be the most beneficial thing that they could have. Um, so it's kind of thing. So I suppose um, a few a few sort of closing thoughts then, and um, you know, what's what's the long term sort of hopes and aspirations that you you would like out of your research and over the next sort of this project, but kind of long-term when, you know, you're just beginning your Mm -hmm. career, um, where where would you see things going? So with this project, I will always study beavers. I will always try to push the envelope of what they can do to the landscape and figure out what their impacts are and what they work well with and what they don't work well with in lots of different contexts, mountains, deserts. I'm excited to start looking at beavers that live along the coasts in California because that's a totally different system. There's now seawater coming in and salt, and I don't know what's going to happen in that scenario. Like, what role do the beavers play there? So I'm very excited about Mm. that. I'm also excited about branching out and trying to find out who the other ecosystem engineers really are. So everybody sort of knows that beavers change the landscape in some capacity or another. Um, they're the archetypal ecosystem engineer. Everybody is like, wow, beavers, they're the ones that change the earth. But I'm pretty sure there's other animals that do too, and they just haven't gotten quite as much attention yet. And so one of the things that I'm starting is to look at other animals that are changing the landscape and see to what extent do they really change it. Beavers are obvious, they build a dam. But something I've been looking at lately is elephant seals on the beach. And so they're just massive seals like the males are up to 9,000 pounds, just absolutely enormous creatures. And they drag themselves along the beach in the same paths over and over and over again. And when they do that, they wind up sort of making these ruts with their bodies that are like little canals all over the beach. And so when you have a high tide or when you have rainfall, these are going to act like little waterways. So it's a very temporary sort of wetland that they're creating just by dragging themselves around. And I can't find anyone who studied that. And it just, it made me think like what other animal impacts have gone overlooked? Like what other animals could be used to build more resiliency in the landscape? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a whole whole topic area in itself. You know, beavers are one thing and then, yeah, branches out into a million different things and how different animals affect the, the environment and I suppose we can, how we can help them to help us mm-hmm. as well. Um, that sort of thing okay cool so, so if, i suppose if anybody's listening and they think oh, actually i've got an idea for that or you know there's somebody you know techie there is like actually i can help with that project or somebody wants to be involved in some way so a way for people to get in touch with you um you know reach out to you so mm-hmm. it's an appropriate way to do things what's what's the best way for people to do uh, two to you? easiest ways are to shoot me a message on twitter it's at emily fairfax i check it pretty often and i use it for all my science stuff and then I also have a science website, which is emilyfairfaxscience.com, and it has my email on it as well as a little contact box if you wanted to shoot me a more private message. And both of those are totally fine. I am always happy to talk, always looking for more people to work with. I'm very excited about it. Perfect. Great. And I will link them up in the, in the description of this uh, episode as well for those of you uh, who didn't quite write that down or you're, you're perhaps driving at the moment. The, all the links will be there. You can click them when you're ready. Um, but oh, it's great. Thank you very much for your, for your time, Emily. Appreciate having you on the show and, and, and your insights there into, into Beavers. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem at all. And and thank you, everybody, for listening along. Glad to have you here, as always. Um, if you enjoyed today's show, please make sure you do like and share this episode. Uh, follow our channel so you can be up to date every time a new episode comes out. And uh, thank you again, and we'll see you again next time.
Thank you so much for joining in today's episode. And if you're thinking about an audiobook for your own research, please visit www.scipod.global. That's scipod.global and find out how we can help increase your science impact. Bye for now and catch you again next time.